This is the Mojo, the Meaning of Life and Business podcast, where life and business intersect. Hosted by Jennifer Glass, CEO of Business Growth Strategies International and BGSI Coaching. We are dedicated to your success. Welcome to another episode of Mojo, The Meaning of Life and Business. On today's program, we're going to be talking about leadership and strategic leadership. And it's really an important subject for us to be focusing on, because if you think about what leadership means, it's not just the CEO of a business that needs to be a leader. It's everyone all the way down the line from that CEO And also, even if you don't yet have a business or you're not in business, there's a lot of areas where being a leader and honing in on various leadership traits and skills are going to be really important for you in your particular position. And so we have a really great guest with us today who is going to help us really understand what it means to be a leader and how we can really craft our leadership skills. But before I bring my guest on, let me give you a little bit of information about him, why he's such a great guest to be here. Don Schmenka is the author of the best-selling book, The Code of Executives, and he's been featured in the Wall Street Journal and USA Today. He's an award-winning speaker, researcher, founder of the Saga Leadership Institute, and has delivered over 1,700 speeches over his career. Don, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I guess the first question is, before we even get more into honing our leadership skills, what does it mean to actually be a leader, though? I mean, how would you describe leadership? Having followers. (laughs) You know, and, and it's sort of a interesting question because as we started looking at leadership failures we started seeing a paradox that um when we look at the person who has followers that's typically the leader but then we found a lot of leaders um that ended up being questionable in terms of uh who they are as personalities so we're thinking why would somebody follow someone with a flawed personality um Actually, when Apple started uh, using our work and my my colleague Cameron Lugman um, pioneered the innovation training at at Apple, the we were doing a lot of research on, on brain um, innovation. How does creativity occur? And Apple needed to know that because you know Steve Jobs had died uh, recently, and then they started publishing books about Steve's leadership style, and they. <laughs> They weren't saying what we expected. I mean, they, you know, they said he was an asshole. He was belittling. He disparaged people. He was always enraged, or something was going on that was dysfunctional behavior. And I thought an interesting question that no one was really asking is, how does a guy that violates all the leadership training that we offer in our, our colleges and and in corporate training programs, how does this guy who violates all this end up creating the most powerful company in the world? And I was curious why no one was asking that question, but it it furthered our research to try to find an answer. And it turned out that like Steve wasn't the only person that that had this 
the situation. I mean, I, we saw the same configuration in like General Patton, uh, you know, you go through the list, there's, there's all these people that have this dysfunctional, I mean, recent, more recently, like Mother Teresa was identified as a big asshole. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, Mother Teresa, but you can Google it. Um, the thing that I was curious about is what's going on here? Why are we not teaching leadership properly? So yes, a follower, a leader has followers, but what we now know recently from our research is that the followers are not really following the leader they're following the story the leader represents, what we call the compelling saga, something we stole from the Vikings. It's not your typical mission or purpose or why statement. It's something totally different. And that seems to be what people really follow. Now, it's not saying that every people need to be an asshole. No, what we're saying is that if you have the story they represent, that's really what they're looking for. So, um, that's a long answer to your simple question of what's a leader. <laughs> and thank you for that. So to frame it and not to get involved in politics here, because that's not the point of uh, the show, but looking at former President Trump and the people that were following him, whether it was throughout his term as president or it was in the final days of his presidency, and everything in between, there was a lot of people who became really big fans and followers of the president, mm -hmm. even though his leadership style may differ from what we would normally consider um, that functional leadership, like you were mentioning earlier, without getting into any more political of a conversation there. Um, am I correct in that way of understanding how yeah, we would define that. Yeah, I think that's probably a good example. Um, and again, he's—I—I I, I don't know. Personally, I met people that you know, known him for twenty years. You know, hanging out in New York City and and uh, in the business clubs there. That say he's a real is a nice guy. So maybe maybe that's true. Um, but I think they weren't following him because he was a nice guy, even though he might be. I think they were following him because he presented a story, and people were following that story. And I right. think. This opened up a series of questions, I guess, for the political realm in this country is this is really a battle of stories. You know, it's a battle of beliefs. And yet I see a lot of parties degrading into tactics like, you know, um, you know, just they're forgetting that it's the story, you know, and they're falling into just uh, a quagmire of, oh, God, I don't know, your typical political behaviors. But I think if we got back to the story piece, which has always served this country well in terms of some of the great things we've done, you know, the activating for you know World War II, the the space program, space program, great example. I mean, you know, Kennedy has got an issue is, you know, he's, he's in a, a total racial divide in the country, total conflict. The whole civil rights thing was giving birth. And um, the and the Russians had a spaceship over top of us, the Sputnik thing. So. He's like, what am I going to do? But his his charter was find something that we can all engage around and win. And um, and that's what happened. And Charles Garfield, I think that was his name, wrote a book called Peak Performance. It was about 20, 30 years ago. And he could, he could show like a tripling of productivity in the aerospace industry. And there was no change program. There was no new mission statement in terms of these companies. It was about a guy, the president, getting on 
camera and on TV and just saying, hey, we're going to go to the moon and we're going to bring people back to Earth safely and nothing's going to be more, uh, what was the word she uses? Nothing's going to be tougher or more expensive. And we said, deal. And the whole country just rallied together and, you know, we, we achieved that. So, but then when Neil Armstrong came back to Earth, uh, Garfield traced the productivity declines in the aerospace and aerospace industry to previous levels of low productivity. Now, these are just examples, but they're all through history. And um, I think we should be teaching more of this to people who want to learn about leadership versus everything else we're teaching. And it's just like the story of us going to Mars in a few years as well. Um, I mean, yeah. we're talking about the human desire. Elon Musk has a very um, well-known uh, push for us to go to Mars. Uh, there's a push for us to go to the moon again, actually land on the moon um, once again, because we haven't done it in many, many years, and even explore more of space. And eventually, I would imagine, really explore more of our oceans as well, try to understand what's on our own planet um, yeah. would be the same kind of an idea where we would be going in terms of having that shared goal and that shared mission, like you're saying, behind the story. What is the value? Where is the story in terms of what it is that we're trying to do to really be making a difference? So this is a great start to this conversation. So thank you. Um, so let me ask you now, we know now that we really want to be focused on the story maybe of what it is that we need to be doing. So if we have a CEO of a business and you can have a CEO like Bernie Madoff, like the guy who ran Enron, I'm blanking on his name right now. Um, Ken something. Um, but you have all of those people who that was the story that they had. And then you have other stories like Steve jobs was running Apple and you have Elon Musk running so many different entities and other major CEOs. You have Jack Welsh from GM when, or GE rather, um, when he was there. And all of these incredible leaders, is it that we're looking at a shared story? Is it a particular, though, leadership type that these people had? Bill Gates, um, another example, and if we look at all of these different people, is it the story that we're following? Like we see, um, you know, as an example, to take Michael Dell, how he started in the garage and brought everything to be a massive computer company or Jeff Bezos, who was literally taking the books that he was getting and then taking it, packing it, taking it to the post office himself at the very early days of Amazon and how he built that into a company is it looking at it from the story of how things are developing? Is it looking at it from a story? Here's our shared mission. What exactly would that story be that we would be looking at to get a better understanding of where that story type of leadership, let's start in that direction, how that would be coming to fruition? When we work with uh, companies to develop these stories and uh, growing their sales dramatically, it, and, and it was interesting because it was just an experiment. And we, but when we saw, you know, revenues go up two, three, in some cases, 10 times the sales within a few years, 
Um, I was just a scientist. I didn't really know, you know, what that meant until a bunch of CEOs said, no, this is pretty important. So uh, that's how we kept doing, doing this research. And uh, what we found is in the various methods we were using, the one method that was consistent was developing uh, that story. Now, we ended up calling it a compelling saga. And the reason we used that term was because we had, a, we had enough medical and ancient. So we had modern biological measurement and ancient measurement around this thing called a compelling saga. And it was different than a mission or a why or vision statement because you know we saw a lot of bankrupt companies that had really great statements. I mean, very inspiring, very motivational. And well, why did they go bankrupt? This became a question that uh, no one was asking, but we decided to ask. And it turned out that um, their stories weren't necessarily strategically indexed. So I would say, where does it come from? It has to come from strategy. In other words, what's your strategic winning formula? And uh, once you have a winning formula, then you can take that strategic initiative and create a story around it. Now, what's the story supposed to contain? Well, we found out that, you know, touchy-feely, let's make everybody happy statements aren't good enough. It needs to be a story that inspires passion for something ahead that's, that's so formidable that a couple of dimensions are triggered. And these are dimensions we see rarely triggered in a mission or why or a vision or purpose statement. And uh, in a compelling saga, you're triggering need. In other words, needing each other. So it has to be a challenge ahead where people believe that they need each other in order to achieve it. And that was interesting because we, you know, I was on an expedition in the Himalaya. I do a lot of expeditions every year um, just to learn and test these things in remote regions of the world and mainly see how operate how, how people are operating in various cultures. And this lost civilization in the Himalayas, I visited there for about a month, and it was interesting at the end of the expedition, the American team starts dysfunctioning. I mean, getting political, being selfish, being, and it turned out that this happens a lot in expedition teams, and I never noticed it before. But once you've achieved the goal, you don't need each other anymore, you start dysfunctioning. So that's when I, 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 I had this epiphany like oh that statement needs to create a belief of need so that's the first thing we would look for in creating a story it does it create a belief of need and then the last part is does it also also create such passion that people are willing to do two things that we don't teach in leadership school or in, in the leadership programs and that is to suffer and sacrifice together because we don't have courses on suffering, we don't have courses on sacrifice. But we found that those two dimensions took uh, companies to greater heights and greater profitability than anything else. Because when it comes to strategic execution, and you had a team that needs each other, and they're so passionate, they're willing to suffer and sacrifice for it, they'll pretty much outrun any other team that's just trying to feel good and make sure everybody stays happy. That's what we found from the research. And it's really interesting that you mentioned that in these expeditions that uh, the groups end up ultimately falling apart. Um, I guess the question, though, is, is that part of the human condition that it's all human. we met? Yeah, it's all human. I mean, this is how we work as a species. So. Right. 
these elements uh, weren't discovered just because we have a modern management theory. They actually go back thousands of years. So you look at the most ancient writings of humans, and they're telling us this exact thing. So I think when we developed uh, 2 million years ago, we had an evolutionary leap in mammals for a neocortex. It offered a different way of leading, you know, because we weren't leading the way other animals might lead. And so that's why our species uh, has to create these elements, you know, because we're not leading by, you know, just dominant alpha behavior or pheromones or, you know, different biochemical reactions. We're leading through a different method and it's about story. So if we were to look at the animal kingdom, because you mentioned that, and you've got the lion who is the king of the jungle, right? or the king of um, the wild. And the lion rules the pride and everything in it, and all of the animals look up to the lion. Is that just pure animal instinct? Is that the predator versus, or the pre predator versus prey kind of idea? Is there something there that we're looking at in the human species and how we look at leadership based on how the animal kingdom looks at it, or is that completely separate and apart from what happens in the animal kingdom? Well, I think we, we have certain instincts because we, we when we do culture change in companies, we actually look at triggering tribal grouping behaviors. So we are triggering those types of instincts that actually do happen. And, um, and in the... Um, in the animal kingdom, and we can use lions as an example, the yeah, lions, uh, males will battle other males for, for domination of, the, of being able to service the females. But the, the females are really in control in a sense um, because the, you know, whenever I'm out and surveying lions or observing their behavior, I, I rarely see a male lion. I mean, they're, they're really just alone skirting the periphery uh protecting his territory from other lions and um you know when there's a battle it's usually another male lion the the, the females however are doing really amazing work um i was i remember a couple of years ago i was in the i was in south africa for a safari and um the there was probably Oh, maybe a dozen female lions. And the it was interesting because we saw two stalking a buffalo below in the valley. Then we saw the rest grouping in another area. And then they all decided to go back home. And for some reason, this alpha female came back. So for some reason, realized these other two lions were missing and went up to the edge of the ravine and, and let out this gut-shaking growl. And those other two lions came up and they all went back as a group, which taught me that, yes, it is possible to herd cats because they hurt each other pretty well. <laughs> and they all went back and we discovered you know, a, a dozen of a small, small uh, offspring. It was really an amazing experience. But the whole point is that um, the leadership really, you know, it, it depends. I mean, in this case, you had an alpha female who was leading the group, who was, you know, they were looking for food and things like that. The guy I never saw, I mean, out there on the periphery somewhere. And I would ask my guides when we were on safari, like, you know, where's the, where's the male line? They were harder to find because they're always just 
around. They they would come back to eat and mate, but then they would go back out again to to fight. So it really all depends what's um, you know what this means. And I think for humans, because we you will find certain feral activity in certain types of societies, but generally with a neocortex, it gives us the possibility of more advanced functioning around that. So um, even though we will see, um, like for instance, let you know, look at males um, doing certain criminal activities that are impulsive, that a lot of scientists index back to you know mammal behaviors. Uh, at the uh, at the other end, we're actually, actually we're still creating amazing societies, cultures, civilizations, technologies, and that's you know, the advantage, I guess, of having a neocortex. <laughs> Okay. Interesting how all of that and looking at the evolutionary um, history has impacted our ability to uh, change and, well, I guess evolve, but how we really became more of where we are today. So let's get into the leadership styles. There's numerous styles that leaders have. You mentioned some are more functional than others, and some are authoritarian. We see that in the political world, how uh, leaders of the um, authoritarian states or the um, dictatorial states, they've got a certain way of leading. You see how man over history with the monarchs and republics and democracies have evolved. There's a lot of leadership that has happened in that regard. But then also, as we're living today, there are some companies where it is an authoritarian company. The person at the top says, this is what we're doing, and this is how we're doing it, and we're not going to deviate, and it doesn't matter what happens. And sometimes they become the relics of the past, and sometimes they may be onto something if and when the situation is actually a valid reason for running in that direction. I mean, you mentioned earlier President Kennedy saying it's going to be a long and expensive and arduous um, process to land somebody on the moon. But we got them there. And he's the one that in his inaugural speech said, by the end of the decade, we're going to have a man on the moon. Unfortunately, he didn't live to see it, but it was that idea, and he put that in motion over the next eight and a half years. And so there was a lot that happened because of that direct push. But if we look at the different leadership styles, is there one that is perhaps better for a new business owner or a new manager to really start to want to try and bring in or to hone? Is it something that is a mix of leadership styles? What would your recommendation be uh, in terms of looking at it in that regard? It's uh, interesting tapestry um, because it all depends. I've seen situations where, um, you know, in a startup, uh, the, the, the leader basically made the decisions and delegated actions to be taken but the strategic development and direction was was in their head i mean they did their 
strategic planning every morning in the shower. And that was then they came to work and, you know, they issued directives and people wanted them to do that. They wanted to know where are we going and we're following you and tell us what we got to do. Um, and then you see other situations where it's a group, group of people coming together and they're collaborating and, you know, they're looking at what's the problem we need to solve here and what's possible and how do we organize. And they may self-select a leader who can help uh, support the collaboration, can help um, the, the integration of, of the group itself, and they're successful. So, and then even over time, it changes. I mean, or there's, there's situations where you might have a great collaborative consensus-driven organization, and then a crisis happens. And, you know, things are on fire. I mean, that's not, that's not the time to have a team meeting. And this is where the leader who can be directive uh, can stand up and uh, just say, hey, here's where we're going. And it was interesting, uh, Peter Schutz, the uh, uh, former president of Porsche, you know, I, I met him a few times on the speaking circuit. And I actually had one of the old Porsches from the original founders in the U.S. that brought it over. And so uh, it was interesting looking at him and how he turned Porsche around. And it was he said, you know, we, we kind of do things wrong. We we try to execute having team meetings and we shouldn't. He said we the team meeting should be before we enter the race, because when we enter the race and like the car comes into the pit stop, you only have seconds to make something happen. That's not the time to have a team meeting. So he says we should execute by using a directive style leadership but plan using a team-based style of leadership. It was an interesting juxtaposition because we find that a lot of times when we're executing, uh, we don't know the boundaries. It's like, wait a minute, do we? what's the speed we need here? Uh, and is this working with a bunch of drawn out team meetings or should we have figured this out earlier? Or, you know, so it's a hard question to, to answer because the situations dictate something different. That's why when we go into companies, we don't just jump in. We, we actually do a situational analysis interviews, observations, assessments. And then it's easy to come in and say, okay, given your situation, here's what can work. And then we launch from there. Um, and I think that's why a lot of leadership programs fail at such high rates. When you when you get on like Google Scholar and you look at management theory failure rates, you get like 4 million papers published. And I'm like, why is there so many papers published on failure? And it's, I think it's because we we think one way works all the time. And so your question is is a good question because it's uh, I'm not sure if one way works all the time. I think it requires uh, a situational approach, and even that may change over time. There's times where yeah, we needed this directive style to get from here to there, but now that we're there, we need to get more into a participative, collaborative approach to moving forward. And I think the flexibility and the adaptability of leadership is maybe more of the strength of a, of a powerful organization than, you know, we're just going to do it this way. This is the best way. And that's it. You know, I, I haven't found a lot of success with that. We need to teach adaptability. Absolutely. And I mean, we're talking about failure and sometimes, I mean, failure itself can be a major learning opportunity. Um, I forget which of the Google founders originally said it, but they said uh, that they would rather fail quickly than slowly so that they can learn from their mistake, yeah. pivot, and move on. And yep. I mean, if you look at uh, Sergey Brin, when he was in the pizza business 
and it failed. In that regard, I mean, you look at what happened, and it's going to be completely, all right, he's a failure. But then he went on to form Google, which is the Hmm. leader in the search engine uh, space. And so there's a lot of those different things when it comes to failure and also the, I guess, the leadership failure of where we're looking to really would have a major impact because we see how certain companies are going and the person at the top is failing. You bring around these turnaround agents and they're able to really revive that brand that was on its, you know, the fast way to um, extinction. And so when it comes down to what it is that we're doing, we know that there's certain things sometimes we need to have that quick pivot on. And I love how you also said, though, that it's not having the uh, team meeting when it comes to figuring out direction and the leadership at that point, it's before we actually get in the race. Like you said, when you're at the pit stop, having eight seconds to get the tire changed and everything to get the car out of there, I mean, it's a huge amount of work that has to be done, and the whole team has to operate cohesively. And if one person is off by a tenth of a second, it can mean the difference between coming in first or second. And we see how all of that uh, plays in. So if we look then at where we are as a leadership style, and we know that it's a tapestry, that each person is going to be their own, and maybe they're a mix of leadership styles as well. Um, We know also the DISC assessments and things along those lines that tell us, are we more out there? Are we more reserved? Is there a particular style when it comes to saying or a particular way of identifying before somebody becomes a leader, this is going to be a natural born leader, or this is somebody that we're going to need to help understand more how to actually lead. Like, is there an actual innate quality of leadership, I guess would be the best way for this to start. Um from uh, personality profiling or behavioral profiling, we haven't seen a lot of consistency around you need to be this profile to be a great leader or this profile determines you'll be a great leader. We have seen a lot of evidence that complex brain functioning does determine the level you can lead from and uh, can identify you as potential leader at the top of the organization. And this came out of the controversial work of Dr. Elia Jacks. And um, and I remember um, when he died, I, m- I met with his uh, his partner and she was very, uh, very uh, illuminating to me around uh, how they did the research, what came out of it. And, but it was so politically incorrect, unless you're a CEO, and then it makes a lot of sense. Uh, that people are really born with a certain neurological capacity for handling cognitive complex thinking. has nothing to do with intelligence, has nothing to do with EQ or IQ or any of the other cues. It's really a way of being able to see complex patterns in your mind and think and recognize these patterns and deal with them. And he found out that the one way 
to measure that is how far out can the person see into the future? You know, where, where's their time span or the time horizon they operate from? Because if you're running it a five-year project, that requires much more complex thinking than a five-day project. And so when he measured the human race, his model actually delineated where people think, you know, from one day to three months, to one year, to two years, to, you know, three, five, 10, all the way up. And what was happening is, um, two, I think what was interesting is the, and I teach, I teach this a lot in our, in our work. It's like, cause it's, you know, one day to three months, that's great. Most humans can do that. Then it goes to one year, then to two years, then to five years. As you get higher and higher, there's fewer humans available. So only a few humans can actually see out that far. But what he found out was that people always want to follow someone who sees farther than they do. And I thought that was interesting. So when it comes to this answering your question around, huh, is there a way to tell whether someone has this natural capability? I find that biologically, we sense this in each other. And followers want to follow someone who can see farther than they can see. In other words, have a higher level of complex thinking capacity. They don't think of that consciously, but it's almost an instinctive feeling. And so at every level, you want to make sure that there are people are always reporting to someone who can see farther, who has a higher level of complex thinking. This opened up some interesting research for us because when we found a lot of CEOs getting sucked into operations, and they didn't realize it until we noted, until we noted it. And it was like 80% of them thought, you know, I'm sucked into operations too much. It turned out that there was a weakness in the team below them. In other words, they promoted someone beyond their level of complex thinking, so they could no longer delegate to that person. They could no longer uh, hand off something, and that person would get it and then begin executing. They actually got pulled into that person's functionality, in a sense, doing their job. And it all had to do with this, this brain theory that came out of the psychiatric work of Dr. LHX. Now, it was so controversial and politically incorrect that I, I never took off on the, in the bestseller area. But when you become a CEO, it takes off very well. And it helps you structure your organization. And it helps you explain why there's a lot of conflict going on that you couldn't explain before. And that's really interesting to think about, did you bring the person up too fast? Did you bring the wrong person up because they don't have the right brain capacity, which is really interesting. And I guess the question, though, would be if I were in a company and I have a VP of operations and my COO role came up because my COO retired, moved to another opportunity, whatever it might be. How would I know that my vice president of operations is not necessarily the best person, but maybe my sales VP would be better? Is there something there that we can better understand? I'm just trying to really wrap my head around that. And I understand it's controversial and non-PC and everything, but I think that a lot of our listeners would really try and be, uh, I'm sure that, uh, if you're listening, you're probably wondering the same thing. How do you know that this person is going to be right or this per person is going to be wrong if I'm looking at bringing somebody up so that I'm not going to be in that seat, whether it's operations or it's sales, marketing, 
whatever it might be, because in each of them, the big picture is still out there in their specific area, and the CEO may be drawn in to any of those roles simply because they're chief executive. Um, but is there something that would say this person really, and I know you said it's instinctual, but is there anything that would help us really understand that better in terms of that way of thinking? Yeah. What's the longest term project they can successfully manage? In other words, um, okay. you know, you're, yeah, your, your VP may be great at one-year projects. If they're a VP and you want them to do one-year projects and they're excellent and all of a sudden now you got to promote them. Well, could they run a three-year project or a five-year project? And if they can't, that's probably not the person because you're going to be dealing with strategic issues that require someone to be thinking out ahead on trends and patterns in the markets and clients and all that. And if they're just thinking out year to year, you're going to have a problem because they're not going to be making decisions that impact a three-year horizon, only a one-year horizon. So let's get into that for a second. If I have the one, three, five-year horizon, am I looking at this in a big picture with milestones? Am I looking at it big picture overall? Am I looking at the individual milestones to get me to where we want to be in five years. So I'm trying just to get an idea because I know that there's this idea of transformational leadership, which is basically looking at it on a big picture, but then you may miss a couple of different pieces along the way because you're focused on the big picture. And so you may miss certain pieces. So is the person that we're looking at bringing in based on that three, five year horizon is it that they're more than transformational leadership? Is it more that they're somewhere else? What is it that we would really be looking at just to better understand that? Well, yeah, with Elliot's model, it's like it's a one-year, a two-year, and a five-year horizon. What's happening in this is that it's, I mean, a couple of things. One is what we found is that people... It, they're, they're, uh, if you're, if let's say you're a one-year thinker and you want to be a two-year thinker or a five-year thinker, there was no transformational impact that made that happen. In other words, you could throw as many transformational courses or coaches or consultants or trainers or TEDx talks at this person, and they would still not be able to run uh, a project uh, from one year to two years or from one year to five years. And that's what was controversial about Elliot's work because we're always taught, well, everybody's got potential. Everybody can, you know, they can always learn and grow and be, you know, better. And so we can't, we don't want to label people and, or stick them in a box. And what this is saying is, no, we stick them in a box. That's how it works. And what's interesting is we found some genetic patterns that may make this make sense, you know, and it's like as our species evolved, um, you don't want to have a bunch of people thinking out five years. That would be crazy because we'd all starve because nobody's collecting the crops. You know, nobody's doing the day-to-day -day work. And then on the other hand, if you have just a bunch of people who are thinking day-to-day, -day, then you've and then you you're going to go extinct because nobody's leading. Nobody's out there looking at you know the farther uh, reaches of what's possible. And so this was um, highly effective and 
very, uh, in terms of growing companies, very, very um, important distinction. But it does go against the grain of, geez, we can transform anybody to do anything. And we just haven't seen the data on that. It's interesting. And you kind of get the idea. You want somebody who understands the weather patterns, that understands how the crops are going to grow, when to plant the crops and all of that. So you really have a better understanding instead of just doing it. Right. Everybody just throw everything in the ground today and we'll see what comes in six months and right. who knows where we're going to be. Right. Um, right. So it's really interesting to think of it in that regard. Um, so let me ask you then, when it comes down to leadership styles, and there's a lot of different styles that are out there, is, and again, I know we said that it's dependent on the person to really figure out what works best for them. But is there anything that we can do to help them grow in that leadership style? And that's not necessarily saying the one to two year or one to five year project, but is there anything that we can do to help support them, to make them better leaders and understand more what the job really entails of being a good leader and not just, well, it's all based on story and good luck coming up with a story and go. I mean, we don't want to throw them into the lion's den and say, go do it. Um, so I guess the question is, what can we do to make sure that we support our new leaders as they become leaders? Assuming they're at the level of leadership that they can function in, uh, then there are a ton of books and courses and trainings on how to do that. I mean, there's, uh, and you can learn something from everything, you know, behavioral profiling, uh, management styles, um, situational awareness and or situational leadership. There's a lot of um, tons of great coaches and, and books out there on how to improve yourself as a leader. I think, so I don't think we have any lack of that. I mean, there are 35,000 books in business published every year. I think out of that 35,000, you can find three that might help the person for what they, they need. But I think when you're developing someone and you're looking at them, it may be finding out where, where are they strong, where are they weak? And in the weakness, then provide those trainings and those coachings and those, those books necessary to try to get them aware of that area of weakness, that blind spot, if you will, and, be, and, and develop more there. The mistake I think we make, as we said earlier, is when you, you want to promote them beyond their level of complex thinking, that it doesn't matter how much training they've had, they'll be unable to fulfill that position. Whereas in their previous job, they could have been great as a leader. They could have been great in their function. I can't tell you how many times somebody came in and to me and said, look, I, I got to fire my vice president of sales. And I'm like, well, how did they become vice president? And the CEO says, well, I promoted them because they were a great salesperson. I'm like, great. You just destroyed your great salesperson. You, you put them in a role that they're totally not able to function at. Now, if the ego is very low, the evil spirit, as we call it in the samurai terms from my first book, um, it's they want to go back to work being a great salesperson. You know, they, they're they're frustrated. They, they know they're doing something wrong. They don't know how to fix it. They just put me back in a sales role. That's what I love doing. You know, so... Promoting people beyond their level is the most, I think, dangerous thing when you look at leadership development. 
But once they're where the level is, or, or sure, there's thousands, tens of thousands of, of, of books and topics, and, and they all have something that we can learn from. You know, there's uh, there's always some nuggets somewhere that you could find. So I guess my question then goes to if somebody is looking at starting their own business and they weren't previously a leader in that level of what they've been doing, would the first thing that they want to be doing, would that be having them say they need to have a co-founder who would really be doing the CEO role in terms of the business? Would it be that they take it on and see what they can do? How would we give that person guidance? Because we know that, I mean, first of all, a lot of um, the listeners of this program are um, entrepreneurs and aspiring entrepreneurs. And solopreneurs, maybe two, three people in the business. But are we looking, though, at saying all is lost, which hopefully we're not, um, how do we look at that in terms of uh, the takeaway, really in yeah. terms of the conversation? Yeah, I, it's funny you say that because I'm actually um, finishing a book. Uh, I was just editing it uh, on entrepreneurship because I got a lot of demand for taking the research of that and make it available to entrepreneurs. So we're working with a lot on that. In fact, one of the uh, secrets in the book is what you said earlier that came up with uh, failure. You know, we're teaching how to win as an entrepreneur. We're not teaching how to lose. And so it's in the, the that great Google uh, um, comment you made earlier about let's fail quickly so we can learn. And I think that's that's the key. Now, on, in entrepreneurship, if you're looking at, well, you know, again, it depends. Let's say you're let's say you're doing a, a franchise or something as an entrepreneur. Well, that's that's different because, quite frankly, if you're making, you know, hamburgers, you need to have somebody that can figure out how to manage a staff, recruit, get them working and deal with customer service. And that's a different thing than if you're saying, well, I want to develop a um, an offsite pharma research lab to test new drugs. It's like, OK, well, that's totally different. And in fact, you don't have to be the main researcher. You just have to know that there's a business here. You can hire the researchers and you can hire the people that do the great work. You just need to have a strategy. So I guess the short answer is I would start with strategy. You know, what does winning mean to you as an entrepreneur? And how are you going to win? How are you going to do it? Then that should be able to open up and answer the question, who do I need? And some people may say, well, I just need to outsource all this stuff initially. You know, I, I need to outsource my, my manufacturing to this group. I need to outsource my marketing and PR to this group. I need, you know, and then get things rolling and shipping and then cash flow comes in and then you make another decision saying, okay, which of these can I bring in house as I grow? And then you do that. Um, but initially you're like uh, Bezos, you're out there packing and shipping books and taking one of the post office <laughs> until it's like, well, okay, maybe I need somebody to pack the books for me. <laughs> Do I have enough money now? I can hire that person, you know, and then you, you kind of build from there. So it um, it's really hard to have a, a black and white question with this because I don't, there's a big gray area and a lot, a lot of it depends on the entrepreneur, but if you have a strategy for winning, it gets a lot easier to answer that question because then you could do simple things. And actually we do this in our own business modeling as well as who else is in the industry and what do they do? 
you know it's like okay you may not be the first in so learn you know join join groups of of ceos that are in the same space and what did they do to start off what mistakes did they make you know what can you learn from their failures and uh and grow that because it's like i said it's different you know you get up 10 entrepreneurs in 10 different industries and there's 10 different answers depending on what they're doing i don't know if i'm helping you or not with that answer <laughs> no i think you are and i mean just going back to a perfect example of maybe not being a one to be calling the shots in the beginning um and a really famous uh situation would be Jessica Alba and the Honest Company, right? Jessica Alba um, formed the company. She had a couple of co-founders with her, but if I remember correctly, she never served as its CEO. Mm -hmm. It was always in different areas of the business where she was uh, focused in. And if you look at Goop, which is Gwyneth Paltrow's business, she does serve in the management arm of that business. But she also has that MBA and she understands business a little bit differently in terms of maybe where Jessica Alba was. And again, not that um, either one is more fit than the other. That's not what I mean to say, but it's just looking at where strengths are and going back to the idea where maybe we just need to really have people hang out, like you were saying, where other CEOs are, have that advisory board. And that's one of the things that I tell everybody all the time. And if you're a longtime listener of this show, you know that I've said it multiple times is to have that advisory board made up of an insurance guy, an accountant, a banker, an attorney, uh, industry mentor, a coach, different people that are in those roles, because you don't want to be looking after there's a problem for that person. You want them all along working with you. So that way they're giving you that guidance for where you may be lacking in somewhere that you just can't foresee where a problem may be. And so it's really important to think about it in that regard, how you can be looking at this, how you can be doing all of those different pieces so that you can really be making that difference. So as we look at where we go from here, and there's so much out there on leadership done that I think that our listeners are really going to want to figure out more, want to learn more in terms of leadership, what is involved, where do we go, how do we do. Some companies may want to put people through actual training. Some people may want to learn how to be better leaders of their own. So I guess the first question is, how can people find out more about you? Okay. Um, well, the website we're trying to use as an umbrella for everything we're doing is uh, Saga Leadership. Uh, as I mentioned, the Viking Saga term, S-A-G-A, leadership.com. And we're uh, we're now kind of reorganizing and evolving that side. We want to put everything in one place. That's a good place to go to see what's, what's what and track the research that we're continuing to do and the services that we offer. And we're trying to get more exposed and uh, offerings to the entrepreneurial level because we've been working with major corporations and mid-sized corporations, but I'm getting really excited about the entrepreneurial area. And now, because of COVID, like 
I'm in my cigar room here with uh, you know green screen and everything. I, I actually started doing videos and I thought, wow, this is great because I can get out to thousands of people at one time versus just a few hundred. And so um, I'm learning too, and I'm making a lot of mistakes as we go, but I'm getting better at it to maybe uh, offer a um, you know online distribution of research findings that we have and, and tips and techniques so this new book hopefully in the next nine months i'll have something out on pulling together a lot of what we're talking about that's great and definitely look into uh the sagaleadership.com site uh because you're going to find so much uh information there and um I know that I believe there's also a free course that you can opt into uh, that you can get a little bit of information on uh, Don's site as well. I know that I'm in middle personally of reviewing the information that was there. Um, and so I strongly suggest that you uh, take advantage of Don's immense knowledge in this space. Uh, the more that you really look at what it means to you being a leader, what it means to your company's success being a leader, what it means to everybody around you. And it doesn't matter, like we said in the beginning, if it's your company, if it's volunteer leadership, if it's simply getting involved in the community as an activist and leader. There are so many different ways that leadership takes uh the way that you see it. And it's really important to understand what it means. We said it's that story that's out there. What is it that really makes a difference in terms of understanding what people are going to be drawn to? And it isn't necessarily like Don was saying in the beginning, that you have to be incredible as a leader. Sometimes the leadership style may simply be everybody is following that story whether or not you're the greatest leader, but they believe in the story and they believe in the path and where you can go from there. The more that you can be doing and looking at how you get there, the easier it is going to be for you to really start seeing how that leadership is really going to be important and understanding where you go. So Don, I want to thank you again for being my guest on today's program. Great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And again, check out sagaleadership.com. That uh, information will be in the description as well for the show and uh, will include Don's other ways of reaching out on social media so that you can be following Don and really start uh, making sure that you've got the various tools and resources you need. And in about nine months or so, when Don's new book comes out, uh, you'll certainly know and uh, be able to keep track of that when you're following Don on social and everything else. On that note, this has been another episode of Mojo, The Meaning of Life and Business. And until next time, here's to your success. This has been another episode of Mojo, The Meaning of Life and Business podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider leaving us a review, liking us, or reaching out to us. You can contact us at bgsicoaching.com and let us know what you think. 
Thanks so much again for listening.